You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us the courage to search out our own hearts and to run uh, as fast as we can into the arms of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, We continue and conclude our Titus series today with Paul's call on the witness of the church to the world. Uh, But Christians are different, uh, but not so different that we don't need reminding. And so Paul is saying, here's how you live with the world, here's how you live with one another, and here's how that happens in our last chapter of Titus. Uh, You may remember that Paul is writing in the context of uh, not just uh, great dissension and infighting within the life of the church, uh, but indeed the whole entire Roman Empire is beginning uh, its uh, stages working toward uh, what ultimately would be its end. And Paul says, even in the midst of all of that, when the world is falling apart, and even when it seems like your church family is not what you longed for it to be, this is the response. Paul tells us in chapter 3 just what kind of shape the world is in in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is harsh language. This is language that we say, well, is Paul coming at it a little too high. Is this really the shape of the world that Paul lives in, much less the shape of the world that we live in? Have things not gotten better? Have they not progressed? Is Paul speaking in hyperbole? But in fact, this is an apt description of the world in which we live. Foolish. How often are we led astray? In fact, that is another thing that he says, led astray. The Greek there actually means to be duped, to be duped by the devil, disobedient. I I used to think uh, when Jesus said, let the little children uh, come to me, uh, I thought he was simply uh, setting up Sarah McLaughlin, we're all born innocent. And then I had children, and that set me right. We're born disobedient. If my children were born obedient, I wouldn't have to put hooks on the cabinets or things over the electrical sockets. I wouldn't have to pull them aside and say, do not do this and do this. We're born disobedient. We're easily duped. We're slaves to various passions and pleasures. And here, uh, Paul is not talking about licentious living. He's talking about things that we might do on a three-day weekend. He's talking about those good pleasures of life, which in and of themselves are great and good, but are we slaves to them? Are our lives so oriented around pleasure and our passions that they are indeed our God and our ultimate end? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
It really is remarkable to me to think of the great atrocities of the 20th century when everybody else in the world seems to think that we're getting better and better and we're progressing intellectually and morally. The 20th century is a testimony that that's simply not true. To hate someone so much that you don't even see them as a human being and they're just a problem to be eradicated as the Jews were in Nazi Germany. What a frightening thing to think that people just like you and me in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, let that happen. And I feel it today. I mean, that is a sign that a society is crumbling when strong disagreement, which I think is good and we ought to be able to reason out our arguments, when disagreement moves to hate, when we can't even tolerate anyone who disagrees with us, that we hate them and count them as less than human. When I think of the Rwandan genocide in a hundred days, a million people were killed. Amazing. Hating one another and hated by others. And it's not limited to the world. Paul goes on in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He's moved from the world now into the life of the church. I'm convinced sometimes that some people are just born ready for a fight. They'll fight about anything. I, one of my good friends was the rector of the Episcopal Church in Cheral, South Carolina, and his first Sunday was the Sunday before Advent in November. And a lady from the altar guild came to him and said, uh, Rector, would you like us to use blue candles for the Advent wreath or purple candles? My friend said, well, what do you think? And you always do this with the altar guild. You defer to them. What do you think uh, we ought to do? And she said, well, I've always thought the blue were very nice. And he said, then by all means, use the blue. First Sunday of Advent was the next Sunday. At the end of the service, there was an army of women waiting for the rector at the end of the church. That woman, they said, has for 25 years tried to supplant the purple candles with blue ones. And you come in here and you let her have her way. They don't want to fight over candles. And yet, there are things worth fighting over. The gospel is worth fighting over. Jesus is worth fighting over. But how often, especially in the church, we get bogged down in things that have no eternal consequence whatsoever. And often, this manifests itself in the life of the church as gossip. And gossip is nothing more than spiritual murder. Even if true, using the shortcomings of another to make ourselves feel better or to look better is, as Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, spiritual murder. The smug satisfaction in seeing others struggle 
and why it's rightly said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. And so how are we to handle a world that is bent on being disobedient, a world that is bent on hating us and one another, and even those within the church who would cause division, who would engage in foolish controversies and quarrels and gossip in things that are unprofitable and worthless. Well, some in the world would say, well, the answer is education, example, and exhortation. People simply need to be educated. People are reasonable after all. Just sit down with them and tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Or be a good example. Show them what life is supposed to look like. Or just exhort them. Encourage them to be kinder. Encourage them to be nicer. But Paul would say, and the Bible says, that simply is not going to work. I was laughing uh, earlier in the week when I saw on the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical Christian news service, uh, that you can now get a retractable Christian fish on your car. Uh, so that when you're driving down the highway and your, your driving does not reflect your faith, you just hide the fish. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, seen that, uh, but I'm convinced that actually having a Christian fish on your car makes you a worse driver. Uh, it actually underlines the malice and envy and hatred uh, that we have in our hearts uh, toward one another. None of that is going to work. So what does Paul tell us? Well, he says it in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. For we ourselves were once that. The first step is understanding who we are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That if it were not for God intervening in our lives, that would be us. And what that ought to engender in us is not looking down our noses, not judgment, but actually compassion. For they know not what they do. They're spiritually blind. How many of us who have a testimony of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ later in life can look back and see that this is an apt description of our lives? This is who we were apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, while in the midst of it, we couldn't see it for what it really was. We thought, I'm not foolish, I'm smart. I pay my taxes. Nobody dupes me. I'm no slave to anyone or anything. I don't hate anybody. But when the eyes of our hearts are open to who Jesus Christ is, the light also shines on the innermost recesses of our hearts, and we see ourselves as we are. And so the first step is understanding who we are and what we've come from and what Jesus has saved us from so that when we look at others, we look at them with compassion. And so when you do encounter someone who is a malicious gossip, absolutely, we ought to check them. I mean, one of the things that I will do, and this is forewarned is forearmed, if you come into my office and you say, well, Bill 
has been doing this the past three years, and I think he needs to stop. I'm going to interrupt you, and I'm going to get Bill on the speakerphone. I've done this before because it does no good to talk about Bill instead of talking to Bill. But the other thing, too, is that when we're listening to people who may be gossiping or may have a complaint, more often than not, what I've found is what they're complaining about is not really what they're complaining about. It's simply a manifestation of a deeper struggle or issue. My grandmother, who I love, and is certainly, I got a permission for this, advanced in age. Anybody that touches a drop of alcohol has the devil within them. And for years, my family has spent many an arduous and long Thanksgiving holiday making their way to the ficus, where the alcohol is hidden, (laughs) and trying our hardest to make sure that grandma doesn't see us. One, the problem is we've oriented ourselves around the dysfunction. But it wasn't until a couple years ago that I finally asked my grandmother, what's your problem? And she said, my dad died when I was five years old of alcoholism. And my only memory of him is of him being drunk. That's the real issue, isn't it? My grandmother, well into her old age, had never dealt with her relationship with her father who died when she was five years old. And so when you hear someone complaining or or struggling with something, as Martin Luther said, listen for the creature waiting. Try to walk a mile in their shoes. Listen to what the real issue is before we jump to judgment. But moreover, to understand if there's to be a change of heart, if there's to be a change in the world in which we live in, Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The answer is not education. The answer is not example. The answer is not exhortation. The answer is Jesus Christ and life in Him. This harkens back to John chapter 3 where Jesus has the encounter with Nicodemus at night. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be regenerate. The answer comes from being born above, not from being born below. The answers are not around us. The answers are outside of us. The answer is the changed heart, this regeneration, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes only through the living Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified, died, and was buried. And so this morning, if you look at this list and you say, that's me, I'm foolish, disobedient, duped, my passions and my pleasures, they run my life, 
when I'm on the roadways, when I'm in my office, in those free moments of thought, my mind is filled with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And maybe you're the believer who says, I gossip a lot because it makes me feel better about myself. But then I go back and I remember that I was once all those things that Paul talked about, but the Lord Jesus Christ got a hold of my life and it had not been for him, I'd still be spiritually blind and a slave and lost in all of these things just as anybody else. If that's you this morning, here's good news. Life-saving, life-changing news that in Jesus Christ you can be freed and you can be changed forever. That you can be set free from the bondage of these things. And even when you fall back into them, God continues to open your eyes. And instead of looking to yourselves and pulling yourself up by the spiritual bootstraps, you look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. So friends, rejoice. This is good news for the sinner. It's good news for the gossiper. It's good news for the Christian. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.